Thank you guys for being here this morning. It's such an honor to get to share and to teach with you. What we're doing right now, for those of you who are visiting, is I'm teaching through a set of devotional ideas uh, from the life and teachings of Jesus. And generally, we'll have four or five devotionals that we can fit in time-wise. Today, it's going to be a little bit different, even though that's still our subject. But we're going to get a little bit more in-depth on some things that, that I think will help us better understand not only some passages in the Bible, but the concepts behind those passages. And those are the two things that I hope we're able to get. So here's your roadmap for class today. We're going to be talking about the Lordship of Jesus. Now the idea of Jesus being Lord is something that rolls off of our tongues uh, as Christians very easily. Jesus is Lord. It's one of the earliest mantras or sayings of the church. We can go outside the biblical writings and find the ancient church writings and one of the common refrains that you read over and over and over is simply Jesus is Lord. But if we're going to really unpack that, I think the right and the fair thing to do is to look at the the vocabulary that's being used. Because that vocabulary is a little bit different than we would normally think. Uh, I've got, I, I guess Andreas is in my mind because he's from Germany and he's He's good with German, he's good with English, he's good with so many different languages. I was in class this morning in Jersey Village with several people who speak English, who speak Spanish. We've got these folks here on the second row from Des Moines who speak uh, English and speak Iowa. Um, we've, <laughs> we've got a variety of people who speak a variety of different languages And if you know multiple languages, you know sometimes words don't easily transfer just one into another language with cookie-cutter precision. So I think we need to spend a little bit of time on the vocabulary. Now, some of y'all might be thinking, gee, that sounds boring. Um, It is. (laughs) Not, I hope. We'll just have to see, but I'll try my best not to make it boring. If you'll try your best to pick up on these words, I promise you, I think they make a difference not only in how we read the Bible, but how we live our faith. So we'll stop at vocabulary on this road. Then we're going to stop at a sign that I call, which Lord? Which Lord? That'll make more sense to you when we get there. But when we look at all the different meanings of Lord... It's a fair question to ask. Our third stop on the road is to see whether or not there's any difference in our lives from these things. And that second stop, which Lord, the third stop, the difference, those will each have a passage from the life of Jesus that we'll look at in the New Testament. And then our concluding stop, our conclusion to this, are the priorities and how this affects the priorities in our lives and how we live. So that's my goal behind this. We're going to start out dealing with vocabulary. The first thing we need to do is make sure that we get a couple of words clear. I've got got three or four different words that I want us to look at, but all of them will focus on this idea of what it means for Jesus to be Lord. 
and we want to put Jesus as Lord under a magnifying glass. But to do that, we need to make sure that we're using the words right. One of the difficulties we've got is we live in the 21st century. The New Testament was written 1900 plus years ago. And save for the rare word here and there, it was written in a Greek language that's not even modern Greek. It's considered classical Koine Greek, an everyday Greek uh, from the time of Jesus that was ta- used throughout the, the, the civilized world. So that Greek language in the New Testament, we read, but we read it as Christians in the 21st century. That's not a fair thing to do. When Matthew wrote Matthew, when Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, John wrote John, when Paul wrote his letters, when the New Testament was being written, the Greek language was being used to express ideas, theology, concepts, doctrine, to express matters of faith. In ways that the Greek language had never been used before. The Greek language had been around for a thousand years in some form or another. But the Greek language itself with its own vocabulary was one that was being molded to Christianity. Christianity did not come as a Greek concept. Christianity came into Judaism. And then the Greek Bible that we have, the New Testament Greek Bible, is one that was written after Jesus had come. So you've got the Greek language that exists apart from the Bible that is then used to write that part that we call the New Testament. Are you tracking with me? All right. Here's why it's important. The Greek language already had this word kurios, or kurios, if you don't pronounce it like you're from Lubbock. Kurios. Kurios. I know what you're thinking. That's what killed the cat. No, that was curiosity. Kurios was a Greek word, and the Greek word we often translate Lord... But that Greek word had a meaning quite apart from anything biblical. First of all, I want you to just try saying it. Say kurios. Kurios. Say it one more time. Kurios. Very good. Now, if you were a slave, you would call your owner kurios. The kurios was the owner of the slave. Kurios was also someone who's in charge by virtue of possession. In other words, if you 
own or run a factory. It's under your care, custody, and control, to use legal terms. If, 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 it's, if it's something that's, that you've got possession over, the workers in the factory would call the person who's in charge, kurios. If you owned a, um, an, a, a grape press, a winery, or an olive oil press, made olive oil, the workers would call the one who's in possession or the one who's running it, the one who's in charge, kurios. So kurios, which is translated in our Bible's Lord, means an owner or one who's in charge by virtue of possession. It's got a range of meanings. You follow me? You all ready for the next word? You got kurios. The Greek language also, totally apart from the New Testament, totally apart from Jesus, totally apart from anything being written in the Bible, the Greeks had a word for God. That word was theos. Or if you're from Lubbock, theos. Theos. Say it. Theos. All right, now what... Does that convey? The Greek word theos conveyed the idea of a transcendent being. Transcendent means doesn't live here, but is here. Or at least visits. God is otherworldly, but comes into this world. A transcendent being who exercises control over human affairs. Maybe a lot of control, maybe a little control. That is theos. Okay? Now, we, we can take a moment and we can look at this word on the Elmo. So, the word theos, T-H-E-O-S. Can we get the Elmo up, please? Yes, no, maybe. Maybe the Elmo's not working. We don't have Elmo today? That's a bad sign. We need Elmo today. Uh, Richard will go to work on seeing if he can change that world. And if he can, great. And if not, then we're going to use the Elmo in your mind. In your mind, you're going to look at that word theos... And you're going to think, what happens if I put ology at the end? Take off the S. Theology means the study of God. There's a Greek word, pan, P-A-N, that means all. Pos or pon, either one. All. Pon, pan, P-A-N, pon. So if you talk about all, pawn, gods, theos, what do you get? The pantheon, all of the Greek gods. And the Greeks did have a lot of gods. They had Zeus, the big dog. 
They had Hades, the god of the underworld. They had Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Eros, the god of desire. They had all sorts of different gods. And so they had a word for God. It could be plural, it could be singular, depending on the form it took. But that was Theos. Theos. Okay? So do you remember the word for Lord? Kurios. It killed the cat, remember? Kurios. The word for God. Theos. That's great. That's great. Now, let's keep them in your brain. We've got Lord, Kurios, the owner, someone who's in charge by virtue of possession. And then we've got God, Theos, a transcendent being who exercises control in human affairs. Now, if you're a Greeker, just made that word up. If you're a Greeker, if you're a Hellenist, we'll use the real word. If you're a Greeker, I like that better. If you're a Greeker, you got those words. They're part of your vocabulary. That's everyday words. Those are words you use all the time. They're words you encounter all the time. They're words that are part of your everyday vocabulary. You got it? The problem is, Jesus came as a Jew and lived in a Jewish culture, a Jewish milieu. He lived among a Jewish people as a Jew, the chosen one of the chosen people. And so you've got someone whose life, whose in a sense history, prophetic history, is found in the Hebrew language, not the Greek. So, how are we going to understand this? The Hebrew language had a word that we'll often see translated as Lord. It was a word that in Hebrew is Adon. Adon. Say it. Adon. You can add I unless you're Ashkenazi, in which you'd add oi to the end. And you could say Adonai or Adonai, which means my Lord. That ending means my Lord. But Adon itself just means Lord. Now the Hebrew idea would be a Lord or a master. Doesn't have to be an owner per se, but it certainly could be a superintendent of affairs. It's the person who walks around with this mug. I am the boss. So that word Adon in Hebrew means boss. It means the, the, the one who's in charge. And so if you wanted to know, you know, who's the, who's the boss here? You know, if we had been a Jewish household, everyone would call Becky, my wife, Adon. <laughs> I would go home, Adon. 
That's the boss. And Hebrew had a word for the boss, the supervisor, the one in control, the master, the Lord, full range of semantic meanings there. Hebrew also had a word for God. A simple word for God. El is the singular. Elohim is the plural. El means God. But it doesn't only mean God. That's the problem. You can't just, it's not like math, where if X equals 3, you can plug 3 in every time you see an X. If we've got 50, 60,000 words we may be using in our English language, Hebrew would have maybe 10% of that. And the words had to do lots of extra duty. So that word L, for example, can mean, whoops, what happened there? Oh, does that mean I have Elmo now? What a country. That word L can mean God, but it can also mean angels. It can reference men of rank. It can just mean strong or powerful. That word does lots of different duties. It's not the only word in the Hebrew language to do that. There's a Hebrew word, Aleph. It can mean the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But it can also mean a clan, C-L-A-N, a clan of people, a group. It can also mean 1,000. And how you tell what it means each time is by the context. This is one of the reasons we don't have just one version of the Bible. So you've got this idea, this Hebrew word El, which means God or angels or men of rank or strength and power. I tried to find a picture. Well, how do you find a picture for that? So that's the picture I chose just so you've got some image of the brightness of God, of angels, of the, the, the strength of the sun, the power of the sun, men of rank, whatever it may be. So we've got the Hebrew word for Lord, Adon. We've got the Hebrew word for God, El. And then something happened in Hebrew history. There was a fellow named Moses who was kind of grew up in Pharaoh's household in Egypt. It looked like he was going to be successful, have a great life, be one of the royal family. And then he got determined to actually be an adopted slave of the Hebrews. So he went running for his life after he had killed an Egyptian. And he looked like he was going to live out the rest of his days as a shepherd out in the wilderness when one day he's out on Mount Sinai and there's a bush that's burning but not burning up. And out of the bush comes a voice, Moses, Moses. And he approaches the bush and he's told, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And out of the bush, God says to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt where you thought you'd never step foot again where your life is forfeit. I want you to go back to Egypt. 
go to the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh, and demand that he let all of the Hebrews go. That he give away his property as the owner of that slave nation. And among his reticence at going, Moses added, hey, if I go, they're going to want to know your name. See, all the Egyptian gods had names. All of the um, gods of, of the Middle East had names. All of the gods of Greece had names. Heavens, the gods of the Norwegians had names. So Moses says, I'm going to need to know your name. They're going to want to know your name. And God gives him a name. God gives him a name that indicates he's the one true creator God who's going to deliver Israel. That one true creator God. He says to Moses, he says, my name is, in Hebrew, the letters Y-H-V-H. If you're reading the Hebrew, you read from the right side to the left so that comma that looks like it's up at the top, that is a yod, a fist. And then the, the, I don't know what you'd call that. It's kind of a half of a box with like a little leg that doesn't connect. That's a hay. (laughs) Hey, that's what that is. And then that, that looks like a staff or something is a V or a W. And then that last letter is again the H, the hey. So Y, H, V or W, H. We often hear it pronounced as Yahweh. But it's translated in our Bibles as Lord using all capital letters. It's just the O-R-D letters are smaller font. All capital letters. So that the reader knows that they've come across the name of God instead of Adon. Simply the Hebrew word for Lord. That's a lowercase l. You tracking with me? Now here's the key. Yod, hey, vav, hey. Y, H, V, or W, H. Those letters. That name is never to be pronounced. That's the proper name of God that the Hebrew people decided should not be pronounced because of the Ten Commandments. One of the commandments being, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So to say that name is tantamount to blasphemy. Even Jews today that don't practice Judaism are loath or hesitant to say that name. How it would be pronounced is even up to debate because no one said it. In fact, let's just enjoy this Elmo working for a moment. Looky, oh yeah. In fact... If you look at it, it are the Hebrew letters Y, H, W, or V, 
YHWH. Remember they wrote, whoops, they wrote backwards. YHWH. If you go back and look in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are Jewish writings from the time of Jesus, those writers, when they come across this, instead of writing it, would write four dots, one dot for each letter. They didn't even want to write it. And the few times they did write it, instead of writing it in that script, like you're looking at, where the H, for example, the hey, looks like that, they would use this old Paleo-Hebrew script that was a thousand years old to write the name of God. Whereas everything else they would write in a more modern script. That's how reverent the name was to be held. This is the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. But it's not only there. You can go back and read Genesis. You can read that this is Yahweh God who was at creation. This is the Yahweh God who spoke to Abram and Sarah. And said... You're going to have a child, and from that child will come the blessings for all of the earth, the Messiah. So when Moses gets the name, it's not a name that all of a sudden is a brand new God of the day. That's the name of the true creator God, the only God there's ever been. That's the deliverer of Israel. That's the promiser of of the Messiah. Now today, when you see someone or, or work with someone, they know not to pronounce that name if they're reading their Hebrew text. If they're Jewish especially, when they read it, they'll say Adonai. You remember Adon means Lord, Adonai, my Lord. When they come across the name of God, they would just say Adonai. Or They'll say Hashem. Ha means the Shem name. So they'd just be reading across. And instead of trying to say the name of God, they would just say the name. So if you look, for example, I think Genesis 16 was the passage I just flipped open to when I was teaching this in Jersey Village. But we could do it in, in, in almost anywhere. So uh, here we'll do, um, uh, well, here's Genesis 16. Let's put it back. So Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne Abram no children. Sarah had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord's prevented me from bearing children. Look at the word Lord there. Do you see it? It's all capital letters, isn't it? That tells us that what's actually there is the name of God. The Y-H-V or W-H. Yahweh. That's the name of God. So a good Jew who's reading this and Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, would say, The name has prevented me from bearing children. Or, My Lord, Adonai, has, unless they're Ashkenazi, in which I think they'd say Adonai, has prevented me from bearing children. So, are you with me on this? You got it all? All right, now we're going to put all of that together and I'm going to tell you the problem. 
If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. The problem is, how do Greek writers of the New Testament translate words and ideas of the Old Testament? Especially, how do Greek writers of the New Testament translate the name of God which is not to be said? There's not a Greek equivalent. Greek doesn't have a God, a a name. This is the word set aside for the name of God which is not to be said. The name of the Hebrew God. Who is supposedly the true God. Greek didn't have that word. So the writers are struggling. They're sitting there saying, okay, it's okay for God. There's this Hebrew word El that means God. That's fine. We can, that's God, angels, men of rank, strength, and power. We got that. We got that. We can just translate that with Theos. It's not the precise translation, but Theos is a transcendent being. That'll at least cover God and angels. A transcendent being who exercises control in human affairs. All right. So you read theos in the Greek New Testament. Generally, they're talking about that Hebrew idea of El. God. Easy enough. And you've also, you can handle pretty much that Hebrew usage of the word Lord. Hebrew's got that word Lord, Adon. And that means Lord or Master, the boss, the superintendent. Well, Greeks got a word that's pretty close. They've got a word kurios. And kurios means uh, someone who's an owner or someone who is in charge by virtue of possession. That's pretty close. So they can use kurios to translate Lord. Okay. Now, let's get tough. How are the New Testament writers going to be able to convey to their readers when they're talking about the proper name of God? A proper name that's not to be pronounced, that was given to Moses at the burning bush. How on earth are you going to put that into Greek? Are you going to say, well, we could do Lord as an owner or one who's in charge by virtue of possession? Or you can say, we could do theos. We could do, you know, God, a transcendent being who exercises control over human affairs. Well, they didn't choose to do either. What they did instead is for the Yahweh, a proper name that's not to be pronounced. Because the Hebrews would substitute in and say, my Lord. Adonai, they just chose to use that Greek translation, Lord, which translates Adonai. Now the problem is, that word Lord can also mean an owner. It can also mean one who's in charge by virtue of possession. It can mean Yahweh, God, the one true creator God. So when you're reading your Greek Bible... Or our English Bible where it just says, Lord, we got to figure out from the context what it means. And that's the predicament. So when I tell you let's start by getting some words clear. And I say about that name of the word Lord. The word Lord in Greek can mean owner. 
It can mean Yahweh. You've now got all of those options. So with that, let's move past the vocabulary. And let's look at three passages in the New Testament. And see what understanding these terms will do to help us better understand not only who Jesus is, which Lord, but why it makes a difference in our lives. Okay? So, we're going to look at Jesus as Lord and we're going to ask this question. Does that mean he's an owner? Does that mean he's in charge by virtue of possession? Does that mean he's a proper name not to be pronounced? Or now that we can pronounce? Because of the intimacy? Or is it all of the above? It's going to depend in part on the context. But here's a massively marvelous, fantastic key to help us unlock who Jesus really is. See, a lot of people will say, yes, he's, he's, um, he's Lord and Master. But they, 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 not God. Look at what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3. Now, John the Baptist was the prophet who came to, to prepare the road for Jesus. What did John say? According to Matthew 3, John is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now we need to ask, does Matthew mean Jesus is Lord just in the sense of a master? Like the boss at the winery? Or olive press? Or is he talking about Jesus is Lord as a translation of that name that's not to be pronounced? The one true creator God. Well, that's a fair question. But we can get that answer by going back to the Hebrew that Matthew is quoting. See, Matthew gives us the passage out of Isaiah 40 verses 3 and following. I'm going to put up 3, 4, and 5 for you to see. Here's what they say. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yod Hey Vav Hey Yahweh, the name not to be pronounced. When Matthew writes of Jesus being Lord, Matthew's not writing of him just simply being the master or the boss man. He's writing of Jesus as the one true creator God who redeemed and delivered Israel from the bondage of sin. And promised to deliver people of all nations from the slavery of sin. Then the wilderness prepare the way of Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. The name of God that cannot be pronounced. 
make straight in the desert a highway for our L. Because Yahweh, the name that cannot be pronounced, is also God. The one true God. And Matthew's saying, that's who Jesus is. That's what John the Baptist was proclaiming. By the way, that Isaiah passage says, every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. Martin Luther King was fond of quoting that passage because it stands for the equality that Jesus brings to this world. The high and mighty are brought down. The low are brought up. The uneven ground is level. The roughness is made plain. And the glory of Yahweh, the name that will not be uttered, the one true creator God who redeemed Israel from Egypt. The glory of Yahweh is going to be revealed so that people can see it. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And actually there, I say Adonai because that's the way I memorized it. But it's Yahweh. In the original Hebrew. Because the mouth of Yahweh, the name that's not to be expressed, has said it. God has said, I'm going to come and I'm going to do these things. The one true God said, make straight in the way, uh, in the desert, a way for me. Yahweh. The name that cannot be pronounced. And that's what John the Baptist was doing for Jesus. That's who Jesus is. He is the answer for God. So when we read that passage in Matthew, we need to know that Jesus as Lord means Jesus as Yahweh. He is one and the same, even as he is different. Which Lord is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord. Yod Hey Vav Hey, Yahweh, the one not to be pronounced. That is who our Jesus is. Now, why does that make a difference? What are the implications of this? Let me show you how this helps us understand some passages of Scripture that perhaps have troubled you if you've read them before. Look at this one, Matthew 7, 21 through 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord... Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? The passage goes on to say, and Jesus will say, depart, I never knew you. I didn't have an intimate relationship with you. This is huge. This is profound. What this has to say is massive. If we understand the different range of meaning of these words. Jesus says there are a lot of people who are going to come up to me. 
on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? We did this. We did this. We did everything you told us to do. They're coming up to me using the word Lord as if I'm simply their boss, their supervisor. They're the, the, the one with the mug. I'm Michael whatever from the office. Michael who? What was his name? Scott. Yeah, Michael Scott from the office. I told you to do it and you did it. That's getting you nothing. Anybody can take instructions. My computer can take instructions. But I don't have an intimate relationship with it. And Jesus says, the one that I'll know, the one that enters into the kingdom, is the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. What is the will of God? This is not a master, Lord. This is the one true God. This is the one who says, believe in my Son whom I've sent. This is the one who calls us into a relationship by the blood of the Lamb. This is one who says, put your faith and put your trust in me. This is one where we do what he says, not simply because we decided he'd be our coach or our master, but because he's the Lord of all lords. He's the king of all kings. He's the one true creator God. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom of heaven. Not some boss relationship. Jesus is not merely an owner or someone who's in charge by virtue of possession. He's the true Lord of all of those lords. He's the true king of all of the kings we might follow. It makes a huge difference. Now you might be saying, you know, I've messed up on this. There are lots of times where I'm obeying Jesus because I think of him as my boss and I don't want to get fired. I want the Christmas bonus. I know I can get away with some things, but you know, on the big stuff, he's probably paying attention. And that's thinking about it all wrong. And I love one of the subtle ways that Jesus taught this to his apostles because they messed it up too. Let me show you this passage. This is under priorities. This is our conclusion. John 13, 13 through 14. Now here's your challenge. See if you can find it in the passage. All right? I dare say that you've probably read this passage many times and maybe not caught this. I know I had before the first time it jumped out. I dare say maybe you've heard sermons on this passage that haven't caught this. But we're going to catch it today because it's a huge point in the passage. And we're not doing the passage justice if we don't catch it. Okay? You ready to look? We're going to read slowly and carefully. 
Jesus talking to his apostles, his followers. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Does anything jump out at you there? Service, okay. You, so I am, okay. You call me teacher and Lord. That's okay, I'm those. But if I'm your Lord first and then teacher, Jesus flips the order. See, they put Jesus as teacher and then Lord. And that's the wrong kind of Lord. That's the kind of Lord that's just a master. An owner in possession. Teachers owned their own schools. Plato's students would call him teacher, but they would also call him Lord. Kurios. Because he's their teacher, he's is their didascalon, he's, he's that, but he's also their Lord because he owns the school. Jesus says, you can call me teacher, you can call me Lord in that sense, and that's right. As Miss Carolyn was saying, yes on each of those, that's right, he is those things. But it's not just that. He says, if you'll find me to be your Lord first... The one true God. If we see that the one true God whose name is so holy it's not to be pronounced. Who brought the people out of the bondage of slavery to Pharaoh. Who rescued the people from the captivity of Babylon. Who saved the people from the Assyrian assault in the days of Hezekiah. Who promised through Abram to bring a nation from his barren wife. Who promised from the very beginning of creation to send someone through the offspring of woman who would make right the sin that was caused by the enemy in this world and the disobedience of humanity. If we see that that's the one Lord first, real Lord, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, unmentionable name, who's now teaching us, who's washing our feet. You don't think we're going to turn around and wash someone else's? It's no longer simply the moral lesson of the teacher of our school. Hello, Rabbi. Now all of a sudden, it's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings who's doing this. You bet your bottom dollar we're going to follow suit. I mean, where Jesus sits in our heart depends on which Lord he is. You got him as the gold medal blue ribbon Lord? Or is he the silver medal second place ribbon winner? That's, that, that's what difference it makes. Those are the priorities that are before each of us.
So those are your devotionals from the life of Jesus today. I want to bless you with the blessing that it's the blessing that, that, that God wrote for his people. This isn't a blessing that Paul or someone, I mean, this isn't just inspired by God. This is the blessing that God told Moses to have Aaron and the priests pronounce over the people. This is the blessing of God. The blessing of Jesus. Yahweh, the name not to be pronounced, Hashem, Adonai, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom, peace. So when blessed like this, shall they, the priest, put my name upon the people and I will bless them. I give you that blessing. I want the name of God. The name revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. To be upon you with all of the graciousness and peace that comes from wearing that name. Godspeed. I hope to see you next Sunday. Blessings. Mm -hmm.